Good morning again. Thank you, Joe. Got to get used to the way this sounds up here, so it'll take me just a minute. It's very different. 1536, John Calvin, who's the pastor in Geneva, was exiled from Geneva. He was given the boot. And now one of my friends has always said that you've never really pastored unless you've been run off from a church. And so Calvin, like a good pastor, was run out of Geneva. And five years later, he was brought back to Geneva. The church, they changed their mind. They decided, as you know, it must have been a Baptist church, they decided they'd, they'd bring him back. And so he came back to Geneva to pastor the church there. And he picked up at the very passage he left off in 1536. He just told them, take your Bibles and turn something like this. And they turned right to the passage where he had left off five years before. And so in that spirit, we're going to pick up in Hebrews this morning, right where we left off last week. Uh, as we've said here, we're not a church more anymore this week than we were last week. Uh, me and Elish, we're the, cry, the body of Christ. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, we'll be focusing on verses 5 and 6 today, uh, but I want to read uh, beginning back in verse 1 to kind of set the near context. So let's stand and honor the reading of God's Word, and let us hear now the Word of the Lord is inspired by His Spirit. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So here's our text for today. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. God in heaven, your word is what we need this morning. So I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish that which you send it forth to do. That we get our minds off our new place and we would focus our minds on your word now, God. Your word is the agent of change, so pour out your spirit upon us today, God, and sanctify us. And God, if there be those here, no doubt there is, and those who do not know you, Lord, today will be the day when grace draws them to Christ. You draw them to yourself, and they have, you grant them faith and make their hearts willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They might know you as Lord and Savior and live for your glory. And God, do your work in us and do your work through us now. We pray this all in the strong name of our great rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I've asked you this question before because I've preached on this before, but you know, the Bible is repetitive because we are hard of hearing and we are a forgetful people, as Peter puts it. So the Bible says all the important things, it repeats it over and over and over. And so here's my question to you. What does it take for you to be content? What is it that makes you content? What is the one thing 
If you had to live without everything else and you said, I've got to have one thing to make me content, what would that be? Now, I know the Sunday school answer. I know what my children would say if I asked them, well, Jesus, and that's the right answer. But really and truly, I want you to search your hearts. I mean, what is it? What is it that gets you up in the morning? If I were to go out here to Walmart, let's say, and I were to poll 100 people and ask them that question, I think we'd probably get 100 different answers. But for the Christian, I think the answer should be really, really simple. I think the Sunday school answer, I think that's the answer. And so this morning, this is more a sermon in which we, we search our hearts and ask ourselves, what is it I have to have to be happy? Am I happy in Jesus? Am I content? Because I want to argue, as I have before, and so I continue to argue, and I will, I'm sure, again and again and again and again, if the Lord, uh, if the Lord tarries, that the key to Christian maturity and Christian growth, I believe, is contentment in Christ and learning how to see him as your pearl of great price and your treasure in the field, as he put it in the parables we preached through a couple of years ago. And so this text gets at it. And I think C.S. Lewis, a great apologist that many of us read and enjoy, I think he said it best, a very famous quote, and many of you have heard this lots of times. I know I've repeated it, but it's, it's profound. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, this book is an otherworldly book, and the Christian faith is an unworldly, anotherworldly faith, an otherworldly faith, isn't it? We read what Paul said this morning about momentary light affliction and all those things because he looks to this, not to the things that are seen, but to what? To the things that are unseen. And so this morning, as with every morning, every Lord's Day, we want to capture a fresh, a vision of the things that are unseen so that our contentment is in those things, our hearts are drawn to those things and not to the things of this world, not, not even to beautiful buildings. As thankful as we are to have this place. So I think this is the key to Christian maturity, and that's what most fundamentally on the Lord's Day, the people of God are here for Christian maturity, to grow us in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the, the, the context of the entire book of Hebrews is the issue of persevering in the faith. And really, that's the, uh, that's the issue every single day in your life, in my life, it's this war. It's this war for perseverance, this war for my heart. But who will be king of my heart? Will it be me or will it be Christ. Really, those are the choices, right? Who will it be? Will I persevere in faith? And, of course, God has to give us the grace to persevere, right? In this audience, they were being persecuted for their Christian faith, and they were tempted to return to Judaism, which they saw as an easier life. Because it's easier, let's face it, it's easier to check boxes than it is to take our cross and follow Jesus. I can check boxes. I can do my quiet time every day, right? I can pray every day, every day for, you know, Jesus comes back. I can do that. I check a box and say, aren't you proud of me, God? That's easy. And that's Judaism. But it's not so easy to take up your cross and follow Jesus and find your contentment and your, uh, your, your, your treasure in him. And so I've got two main points this morning as we face down this admonition to, to persevere in the faith. And I think this is the key to perseverance, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue. And, it's, and here's my first of, of two main points this morning, and it's this. It's that I see in the text, to be content with Christ and not money. So, well, yeah, come on, that's pretty simple. I mean, we're, we're not a prosperity gospel church. We're a reformed church, and yeah, we, we're content in, in Christ and not money. 
But are we? You lay awake at night, how much do you worry about money? I can tell you, I worry about money a good bit, even about the church. Now we got to, you know, our budget's quite a bit larger, so I'm going to worry about money for us, right? For here. And, and, and again, Scripture repeats these, uh, this is the theme in Scripture of money. And of course, we know the culture, right? money changes everything, right? How much do you need to make you content? Well, no matter how much you have, if you're a billionaire, well, just a little bit more, one man said, and that's right. I think our hearts are much more in tune with that, seeing that song more often than we would like to admit. So be content with Christ and not money. That's what he's, he's saying here uh, in the first part of, of verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content. There's the word. Be content with what you have. So keep your life free from the love of money. And we could add things. We could add all the material things of this world, right? People, relationships, places, memories, all those things. Keep your life free from the love of things, we could say. I think we could safely say that. Because Scripture says this in other places, right? And be content with what you have. In other words, be content. Why? How can we be content? Well, content with Christ. I mean, we're a money-crazed, things-worshipping culture. But first, I want to spend time before we get to money on the... We're not going to spend a lot of time on money, but before we do, let's talk about the more germane issue here, the more fundamental issue for your heart, for my heart, and that is contentment. Because I know you. You say, well, I've just joined the church. I haven't joined the church, but I still know you. I know your heart because I know my heart. I know you're not content in Christ like you should be, and I'm not either. So, so we come back to this and back to this and back to this, don't we? The Puritans, they, they wrote about this all the time. Why? Because they were discontented. The hearts went after other things, other idols. In fact, we're doing our small group study on a book on contentment, built around a book called The, 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 the Christian Grace of Contentment. Or the, uh, and, and so Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, in that book, defines contentment this way. And this is a great definition. I love this. So this is why I, I, re, I repeat it. Contentment comes by melting our will and desires into Christ's will and desires. So that we, what he wants is what we want. So what we think about, what he wants us to think is what we think. His assessment of things, of reality, of our lives, of money and relationships and things and jobs and, and, and life every day, that's our assessment of things, right? So contentment comes by melting our will and desires into Christ's will and desires. And of course, this is especially true in the midst of suffering, you know, that we, we remember this. And also whether we have much or have a little, right? Because there's a, a way of thinking out there that says, well, if you're really in Christ and you're really prospering, then you will have a big house and you'll have lots of money and you'll have a new car and you'll have all the new things, all the new toys, right? And of course, those things in and of themselves aren't sinful, I mean, I'm thankful. I, we probably, everyone in here probably has more than we need. I mean, we can talk about being poor and, you know, we, I think we're more worried about poor in the bank account than we are poor in spirit, as Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount, aren't we? But everyone is here. We live in the West and we've got a lot. We have an abundance, right? We have a, you know, I want to ask Siri because last time I did, Siri spoke to me here in a British accent, which I enjoyed, but uh, you probably won't. But yeah, we, we, can, we can get any answer to anything on our phones now, can't we? That's how spoiled we are, how wealthy we are. And so I've just got an iPhone 7. Well, still, okay, that's not exactly suffering for Jesus, is it? So it's, it's, it, are we going to be content with little? Because first, Paul, Paul, Paul wrestled with this, of course, a lot. First Timothy 6, 6 and 8, he said this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Godliness with contentment. Okay, you seek godliness to pursue sanctification, which we studied in Sunday school this morning. Sanctification with contentment, that is great gain. That is true riches, he's saying. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we takes it right down to the bare nub, doesn't he? Right down to the, the brass tacks. If we have food, if we have clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he goes on to say that many have wandered away from the faith because of this love of money. Because they're not content. We've got to have more and more and more, don't we? But he says, godliness, what is true riches? Godliness with contentment. Because you didn't bring anything into the world, and when you die, guess what? They're not going to take anything out of the world. The pharaohs in Egypt, they, they put all these things in, the, you know, in their graves with them. They put their boat. Their one pharaoh has a boat so he can go up to the, the netherworld, right? Or go up to the, the afterlife. All these jewels, and that's why someone robbed those and found what? They found the jewels there, and they took them. <laughs> King Tut's grave, it was robbed and all the precious jewels. Because he thought he was taking them with him. And lo and behold, they were still there to be robbed, to be pilfered. And your things will be too. And they'll uh, love how the writer of Ecclesiastes, South Solomon, puts it. He says, you know, these are going to go to somebody else, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. In other words, your kids are just going to throw your things away. My kids, I'm going to leave them with some books and a few other things. They're going to go, this is all? <laughs> this is it? And, and who knows where they'll wind up? They're not going with me. They're not going with you. So God leads with contentment. That's what we're after because it's great gain. That's what we're after here. Money? No, it's not going to satisfy because Proverbs says a, a fool and his money basically, and paraphrase, they're, they're soon parted, right? And I don't know how my money tends to fly out of my account and probably yours as well. We all have larger families in here typically, and so yeah, it doesn't stick around long. So we're seeking contentment, contentment in Christ, right? Burroughs Burroughs goes on to contain, Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. This is how it affects us, he says. Sweet, inward, gr quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's an inward submission of the heart. We'll come back to that in a minute. And there's good news. Okay, you say, well, I'm already, I have a big deficit. I'm behind the eight ball here in this sermon. Because you're right, I'm not content. I'm not content in Christ. And I really love money. I'm, I'm worrying about money right now. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay my tuition at seminary, right? Or how am I going to pay the, the mortgage or my rent? Or, you know, are we going to be able to have, uh, you know, a Fourth of July celebration? Lots and lots of things we worry about, concern ourselves with that relate to money. But Paul said, you can learn the secret of contentment. Paul said he had to learn how to be content. And now he's content whether he has much or he has little. Philippians 4, and we won't turn there, but basically Paul's saying there that I've learned the secret of, being, of having much and having little. And then he goes on to use this, Philippians 4, 13, this verse that we put on our desk, you know, and we usually this is kind of like a spiritual, you know, bionic man where you can do any, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We take that to say, well, I can claim anything and, you know, I can dunk a basketball. I've always said that. Well, I can't do a dunk a basketball through Christ who strengthens me. So that's not what that means. Although I've always wanted to dunk a basketball. There's just no hope now. Maybe in heaven, right? A little short for that. A little old for that. Couldn't even do that back in the day. But no, he says, I can do all things. In other words, I can be content because I have Christ. And he is my strength. And he is my portion forever. So I can do all things. All things mean I can be content. It's like bridling the tongue. If you can do that, you're almost perfect, right? You really are. 
if you can do that. I've learned the secret of having much and little. I've learned how to have much and little, but I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. That's what he says next, right? And, and that's, he means I, I can, I have Christ, I have everything. We can learn contentment. And so just in, in those passages, here's four, four lessons we learned from Paul about contentment in, in uh, Philippians 4 and 1 Timothy 6. Just four quick lessons here. One, if Christ is our treasure, then we will be content with little or much. I find that when I get more money than I'm worried, I start to worry about how I'm going to keep it. You do that? You get paid. Payday is Friday, and then by Monday, I'm like, it's going and I'm hating it. I'm awake, I'm awake at night saying, what am I going to do to keep this? I know what I'll do. I mean, I, I scheme all these things in my mind. And sometimes I dream about what if I just had enough that I didn't have to worry about that. But I'd still worry about it. Right? Hey, money, money takes on these godlike characteristics, doesn't it? And it tends to enslave us. But it hides from us the consequences of that enslavement. Like all sin. Right? We don't see the consequences. We just see all the things it can buy, the power, the influence, the friends. Proverbs warns us about those fair-weather friends. You get money, you'll have a lot more friends. <laughs> I had a friend who played Major League Baseball, a guy I got to know when I, when I was a journalist, and he said it's amazing how many friends, a Christian, he said it's amazing that I've signed this contract, how many friends I have. How many people, old friends will contact me. Yeah. We've got to learn to be content, don't we, with much or little Paul says, I'm never in need because I have Christ. I've learned to abound whether I have little or much. And Paul's writing this not from the mansion, but from prison. Paul's a jailbird. Our, our Christian heroes, they weren't the, broad, the bold and the beautiful. They were jailbirds, right? They were people of no reputation, just like our Lord. And that's who we're called to be. Now, I'm not asking you to go get arrested just now, you know. If there's a need for that and what we proclaim someday, there might be in the future. Well, that'll be one thing, but just don't, you know, don't get a martyr complex or anything like that. But if Christ is our treasure, we can be content a little much because we have him, we have everything we need. We have the Savior. I mean, think about it. If you're in Christ, you're saved. You are redeemed. You're justified by faith. And if death, death has no hold over you. The worst thing can happen to you today from a human perspective is you can die. You can get hit by a bus. If you get hit by a bus, you will be in heaven immediately. What a glorious reality. What a glorious truth, right? So little or much, and you're going to leave behind the, every, all those things you have, by the way, even your, your phone, all of it, if you get hit by a bus, or if you have a heart attack, man knows not his time, right? So if Christ our treasure, we would content much. Secondly, as Christians, we must learn contentment. We can, we must. Learn the secret of contentment. It's in Christ. And I know we need to learn it because Paul needed to learn it. Paul was an apostle. And I know we need to learn it because you're like me. Because I think, here's how I think. The grass is always greener. If you're in ministry, you're, not, you're, you're even more susceptible to this, I think, in ministry. Because you look at the big church and say, you know, yeah, we got a new building. But, man, they got, you know, 10,000 people. I drove past a big church this morning. I'm on my way here. And more people were lined up to go in, you know, or turning off the red light than are here this morning. If the fire marshal tells me this morning, it's probably a good thing <laughs> for now. So it's easy to covet those things, isn't it? To covet those things that God hasn't been pleased to give you, even in ministry. The grass is greener. You think about relationships. Well, if I only had my husband or only like him, my husband's mean and nasty. 
He's not a morning person. My husband loves money too much. My husband, he's, he's just too harsh. I wonder if you're sweet like him. Or, you know, what if my wife, she didn't nag me like his wife doesn't, you know? We think this way, don't we? We think, if you could just be like him. How many times do we tell our children, well, you ought to be like so-and-so. If you're like so-and-so, then, you know. And you know what? So-and-so's a sinner. And his husband, or his wife and her husband, they're sinners too, Right? But we live this way. The grass is always greener. This is, again, this is the way. I'm, just, I'm revealing my heart here. I'm assuming you have the same thing. It's always greener. It's always better. It's always a better deal, right? If I go to Kroger and it, coffee's on sale for $4.99, I bet it's on sale for $3.99 at Walmart. It's always a better deal, right? I mean, I would argue that contentment in Christ is the answer to much of our anxiety. Because we're anxious about all these eventualities in life. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in five minutes for that matter, and yet we're anxious about it, right? I have no idea what's going to happen before this sermon is over. I have no idea. And you don't either. So as Christians, we must, we can, we must learn contentment. Thirdly, Paul learned to be content in whatever circumstances he faced, and so can we. Let's revisit just a snippet of what we read in 2 Corinthians 4 this morning. Listen to this. He said, we have this treasure, the gospel and treasure in jars of clay, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So they've got the gospel. To, to, you know, the, so it's, it's in treasure. We're jars of clay to prove that the work of God in saving and sanctifying us, it's the work of God. That's what he says. Then he says this. We're afflicted in every way. Are you afflicted this morning? Well, he says, you're in good company. He says, but we're not crushed. Perplexed. Are you ever perplexed at God's providential working in your life? Why your life turned out this way? Why you're supposed to go to this job or to this school or to this, you know, to this place rather than this place? Or why, why God didn't give you this because you love this and you don't like this so much what he's given you? Are you perplexed? Well, you're in good company. Paul says, I'm perplexed. That's not a sin to be perplexed or the scripture wouldn't say it. He says, perplexed but not forsaken. God hasn't left me. I'm perplexed, but I'm limited in my knowledge. God hasn't left me. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. The Christian, uh, the Christian life and suffering, they go together like a hand in a glove. Are you suffering? Well, that's part of your calling, part of your vocation as a Christian, Right? I mean, if the prosperity gospel were true, every, any fool would sign up for that. You'd be crazy not to sign up for a church, right? If you become a follower of Christ, you'll instantly become a millionaire. Well, <laughs> yeah. And that's why their churches are so big. Because they preach false doctrine. They, they pander to the flesh, right? I think we could draw a crowd. We could fill this room up twice over this morning just by, you know, that, with that message probably. But Paul, as we read I'll read on down to 2 Corinthians 4. He calls it momentary light affliction, right? He says, I'm always being given over to the body of death. And he, later in 2 Corinthians, he goes through this litany of suffering. Paul suffered. He was beaten almost to death. He was left out in the cold. He was starved to death. I mean, he was at the, at the mercy of the elements of, the, of his own people. They beat him nearly to death. Of the Gentiles, they hated him. He didn't have a lot of friends. No one thought his message was popular. He wasn't going on the Oprah show, you know, next week saying, this is a great book, Paul, you've written here in 2 Corinthians. Let's, let's get behind that. Or Ephesians. <laughs> Imagine Ephesians. Chose us in him for the foundation of the world. That's not a popular message. It isn't popular today. wasn't popular then. And he said, it's all momentary light affliction. 
all that suffering. It's momentary light affliction. If you're content in Christ, you can look at the suffering of this world, no matter how awful, and it's awful, and we weep with you when you suffer. We're not just saying, well, hallelujah, anyway. That shouldn't make us callous for sure. I don't mean that. But if, when you're alone in your heart of hearts, you can say, it's momentary light affliction. It's producing me, in me a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Because you can look, if you're in Christ and your contentment's in Christ, you can look to the things that are unseen at the expense of the things that are seen. You can, with Luther, let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also. You can let it go. Again, that should not make you callous toward others. It should make you compassionate toward others. It sets you free to be compassionate. And not question God. And not saying, well, I'm just really struggling with atheism. And some of us have. But he promised not a rose garden, but suffering. And Paul says he had his momentary light affliction. He learned to be content in whatever circumstance he faced, and so can we, because he had Christ. Finally, one who is content in Christ can handle any situation with peace and joy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I can learn contentment. And no matter what storms will into my life, no matter how much the wind and the waves batter my house, and it won't collapse. When we're going through hard times, we won't freak out. We can handle adversity by God's grace, even suffering well by his grace. I mean, afflictions, either you're being afflicted or you will be afflicted. Afflictions will come. We live in a fallen world. It's especially true for Christians who face additional difficulties that simply come with being followers of Christ. I think this is coming to our country if Jesus tarries. I think it's coming. I really do. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I'm not trying to scare you, and we don't scare people into the kingdom, but I think it's coming. I think pretty soon we're going to see who means it and who doesn't mean it. I mean, with the rise of uh, uh, the politically correct culture and the cancel culture and all these things, we're going to find out pretty soon who really can stand up for the truth. When I see the church caving and capitulating, the LGBTQ and all these other things, just playing around with it, playing, just kind of, you know, just caving little by little by little. But we must not. If we love those people, we must not because they need the gospel. They need the good news of Jesus Christ. And we must not cave and say, you're, you're okay and I'm okay. No, 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 beloved. No, no, no. But we can handle it by God's grace if we find our treasure in Christ. It's why Jesus told us his followers must be willing to take up the crosses daily. There's a cost to discipleship. No crown without a cross. And I think recognizing the the inevitability of hardship helps us to face them with a certain degree of contentment. We know it's coming. We don't know what it is or when it is, but it's coming. But we have Jesus, and he's enough. I mean, all hardships are God-ordained. They're Christ-exalting in the life of the believer. And we accept them as, the, as from the hand of a sovereign and good God who has not left us nor forsaken us, which we'll get to in just a moment, then we can face them. We can face them with a degree of contentment because our hope is in God and he is unshakable. Remember we talked about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what he's speaking of. Just a, a last chapter, we've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When our hope's in that kingdom, then our hope is unshakable as well. And we don't freak out. We don't freak out. Do we weep with those that weep? Do we sympathize with others? Of course. This doesn't undermine that at all. I'm not saying we should be callous. It shouldn't. It should make us compassionate. We're set free to love others and be compassionate toward others because we're not freaking out about our own circumstances. They don't define us. Some people are troubled by their trouble. They're defined by trouble. You know people like that? You may be a person like that. You're just defined by trouble. 
drama, we like to call it. That's what it is, right? They're, man, that person's a drama king or drama queen. They're defined by their trouble. When we think of them, we think of trouble. That shouldn't be us. That shouldn't be us. When we cannot bear hardships that God brings, it reveals a deeper problem in our souls. And I think we're in a real spiritual danger. We can never handle anything. We must recognize that God's providence in every situation we face, it's there. That he, His invisible hand is guiding and directing and protecting and loving us all the way through it. Whether we're suffering from a debilitating or deadly physical ailment, we've lost a dear loved one, or we're being mistreated by someone who claims to love us. When we accept all hardships as from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father, we grow in maturity and holiness and, yes, contentment. And all the money in the world can't buy that. And all the money in the world can't buy contentment. That's why he puts them side by side, I believe. Because I'm tempted to think if I just had the world's means, then I'd, have, I'd, I'd be completely content. I'm about 90% content in Jesus, but then I'd be content if I just had a lot of money, a lot of things. I mean, think of Job. Is there a better illustration in Scripture, all of the Bible, and all of human history than Job? And this is why God inspired that and gave us that story of Job. Remember, he went through this, what could only be described as a personal holocaust. He lost his things, his livestock, his money. He lost all of his children. They were killed by in a tornado, all of them at one time, all five dead. And then his wife, his dear wife, what did she say? Well, Job, you're a godly man. I'm going to follow you. This is wonderful. She said, how can you still trust God? Curse God and die. And Job's response tells us where his heart was and where our hearts should be. He said what? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not? And the, literally the word is ra'ach in Hebrew. It means evil. It means adversity. Shall we accept good from the hand of God, all God's gifts, and not adversity? So they both come from his hand because he's sovereign and he is good. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that no matter what? circumstances you are facing in life? Or do you say, well, I'll just get a little more money. That'll, that'll assuage my, my anxiety. I think discontentment is, at the end of the day, at its most fundamental level, is sinful covetousness. Because it's coveting a situation, a circumstance, God has not been pleased to put us in. See how that works? God's sovereign and His, the circumstances of your life are His will. And again, we don't, we truly suffer and we truly weep. But at the end of the day, are we trusting God? Are we content in Him? You say, why is money such a problem? Well, 1 Timothy 6 8, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the ruin there is spiritual. And destruction is. God's wrath forevermore. That's it. Love of money plunges in. It's not saying having money or having plenty of things. No, but it's the love of money. The roots of all kinds of evil, he will say. I think the pertinent question to ask, we must ask ourselves with our money or things is, do we have it or does it have us? I think that's the bottom line. 
Our ultimate satisfaction and contentment must be in Christ because we can. And my second point is this. We can rest in God. You see here the progression of his argument here, the writer's argument. We can rest in God. Don't love money. Be content with what you have and rest in God because he will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I won't fear. The Lord is my helper. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says in the last part of verse 5. I won't leave you. But am I enough? Is my presence enough? That's, that's, the, that, that's the, the ethic here. That's his thinking. The thought process is, am I enough? Because I'm always here. Your things and your money, they will take wings and fly away. But I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. Are you in the middle of a difficult circumstance? I am there with you. And think here, and he quotes here the story of Joshua. Joshua 1, 1 to 9. If you'll read that this afternoon, it'd be a good thing to to, uh, meditate on. I mean, Joshua is quoted here. Moses had died and was the leader, the prophet, the leader of, of Israel, the man of God. Moses had died and he passed on to the leadership to his one of his great lieutenants, Joshua, whom God had raised up to lead them, the people, the children of Israel, into the promised land. Moses couldn't go there because of sin. He wouldn't be allowed. That first generation not be allowed. Joshua was raised up to lead them in. And the people were big, and they were mean, and they had a big army, and they were strong. And the people of Israel, they were weak. Their army was weak. But he went in on the wings of this promise. I will never leave you, Joshua, nor forsake you. Never. Of course, we know that Joshua went in and they conquered the promised land. They had no business winning that war. It's kind of like the Allies beating Germany in World War II. We had no business winning that war. Hitler was a madman, and that's why we won the war, basically. Israel had no business conquering the promised land, but God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just like David had no business conquering Goliath, but it was because it was God's war. The battle belongs to the Lord, and God conquered the giant. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can we be content in Christ? Well, we have a God who never will leave us nor forsake us. He's with you. He's with us. He's among us right now. And if you're in Christ, he's living inside you in the person of his Holy Spirit. He won't leave you. He lives in you personally. He's not going to just, like your money, take wings and fly away and say, I've had enough of this bloke. I'm out of here. Too much discontentment in this brother right here. No, no, no. He'll never leave you. What did Israel do? Did they they walk the straight line? Did they do what Johnny Cash said and walk the line all through the Old Testament? (laughs) What a joke, right? No, they were were sinners. They they fled from God. They worshiped idols and they'd seen God. They'd seen God on Sinai and yet what did they do? They made a golden calf. Immediately. Their hearts fell into idolatry like that. And that is a parable for us. In the Christian life, right, we, our hearts are drawn to everything but God. And so there's this whole, this vicious cycle of idolatry, sin, and God's, uh, God's wrath poured out on them, and then repentance and restoration, and then just a few minutes later, sin, and then it just goes all through. And it shows that there must be a Redeemer who would come who can finally and fully put sin away. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about, this final high priest who's come. All those other priests, they just point to him. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the promise God gave Joshua. This is the promise he's giving us here. And then in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 118.6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. 
So our confidence in the faithfulness of God, our sovereign God, our good God, sets us free from the fear of all things, including, we'll get to in a moment, the fear of man, which he alludes to here in verse 6. Again, Psalm 118, 6. The promise is the one we find God making throughout the Old Testament. He promised Abraham, what? Go to a land I will show you. And Abraham was a polytheist and a pagan. He wasn't a good, a good man God could use. He was a pagan. And God said, I will never leave you to forsake you. Go to a land I'm going to show you. All the patriarchs, go to a land I'll show you. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor, nor forsake you. Jacob, all the, all the patriarchs received this promise. And this is vital because Israel, the ethnic people of God, were about to embark on the most dangerous undertaking since the Exodus. There were going to be people killed. They were going to war. Lots of you are going to die. You won't see the promised land because you're going to be killed in battle. But I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The battle belongs to the Lord. I mean, think about it. They weren't running from the enemy. In the Exodus, that was terrible, but they were running from Egypt, from the enemy, here God says, run into the face, run headlong into the face of the enemy. That was frightening. That's always frightening. War is always frightening. So in the Exodus, yes, that was perilous, but the perilous journey out of Egypt was from, they were fleeing from their enemies. Here God says, no, you now turn and go into the face of your enemies, and I will give you this land because the battle belongs to me, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a lot like the Christian life, isn't it? Old Testament Israel, the whole thing, that's us. We're always being tempted to be, have our hearts drawn away from God. Even if you're in the ministry, you're still, your temptation is always daily. The battle is war within, being drawn away from God, not trusting God. This was an extremely perilous situation into which Joshua is asking people to follow him. And our situation every single day with the world of flesh and the devils, our enemies, it's perilous. Now, of course, we'll never be asked to participate in a holy war in the name of God. But we're called into all manners of perilous situations. I mean, the whole Christian life, it's an adventure, isn't it? It's not for the faint of heart. I had someone tell me recently, this is just too hard. A believer in my own family says, it's just too hard. I said, yeah, it's hard. That's why you need God's grace. You're absolutely right. And they understood God's grace better as a result of having said, this is too hard. You're right. You can't do this in your own strength. You're going to be eaten alive. Of course. Will you be overtaken by your circumstances if you're, if you're, not, if you're not content in Christ? Yes, you will. You don't understand that he's always with you? Then yes, you will. If you, if, if, if you don't understand that and embrace that and live out of that. I mean, the Bible repeatedly describes the history of God's people as a suffering people. And that's us. It's not just possible it's promised. In this world, Jesus said there will be tribulation. John 16, 33. I think about that a lot when I'm in, in perilous situations of my own. In, uh, he says what? He says, in this life there will be tribulation, but what? Take heart. I've overcome the world. That's why he's your treasure and your contentment has to be in him because he's overcome the world. Of course, the Paul in Acts 14 says, through many tribulations, we must come into the kingdom of God. The prosperity gospel, so-called, is not the prosperity gospel. This is the prosperity gospel. You want to prosper in Christ, be content in him. That's the prosperity gospel. That's just some stuff that will pass away. And it's false teaching, of course. But it's really not prosperous, is it? It has promises for this life, but nothing else. There's no hope in that beyond the here and the now. And what God promised Joshua, he promises us, he will be with us. 
I know there's many times when we feel the absence of God. At least I do. We feel like he's forsaken us. But then the test becomes our feelings and the integrity of God's word. Do you trust your feelings or do you trust God's word? That's the, that's the question, right? I mean, God didn't promise you, you, wouldn't, you would, wouldn't, that you would always feel his presence, but he promised he would always give you his presence. You won't always feel it, but I'm always there. So we depend on the feelings or the promise. Do we, do we stand on the feelings and how we feel on a given day or the promise, the promises of God? I mean, there's times when I've experienced God, the presence of God so strongly in my life, it's been palpable. I mean, I've felt weak and just overcome with the presence of God at times. But that's not my everyday experience, and that's probably not mostly every day, to be honest with you. So I stand on these promises. And there's times I'll come to this pulpit, and I'll preach, and I'll go home, and I'll tell my wife, that was awful. Sometimes she'll say, what's awful? <laughs> Nothing like an honest wife. You've got to have an honest wife. You guys go to ministry. Praise the Lord for that. That was terrible, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it wasn't your best, you know. And I'll think, yeah, boy, I just didn't have much energy, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, the hillbilly Jeff kind of overrode the educated Jeff, and I didn't, I wasn't very clear in my talk, you know, and you couldn't understand a word I said. I didn't think, and I stumbled and stuttered and all this stuff and think that was just awful. And it's almost invariably that Sunday that several of you will say, that was awesome, that God really spoke to me through that. Preacher, man, I, and I'm just stupefied. Doug and I had this talk. Doug told me a couple weeks ago the same thing. Man, yesterday was a sneakeroo. <laughs> and then, but then it always happens. Someone said, man, that really spoke to me. God was really with me. He's promised, he's promised to, to attend to the preaching of his word, right? So I, that's my hope, my confidence, not that I can persuade you or I'm going to be winsome every Sunday or sound like John Piper every Sunday. I'm never going to sound like John Piper. I'm just resting that, right? You already have him. You don't need him, right? Apparently you need me. I guess you need me. I'm your lead pastor. So, so hopefully that will liberate some of you guys going to ministry. You can't be Martin Lloyd-Jones or your heroes. They're great to have his heroes or John MacArthur, whoever it is, but God's called you, and he's going to be with you even when you don't feel it. And he's with me in this word. He's with the word. The spirit is with the word even when I don't feel it. Never should we allow our feelings to determine the truth of God's promised presence. God keeps his word, and it rests on his promises. So all this means we don't have to fear or be anxious. We live in an age of anxiety. I've never heard as much about anxiety, never felt anxiety in my own self as much as I have in the last month. And I have people talk to me all the time about being anxious, a lot of young people. And you're probably anxious. And we, it, this, is, this is common to all of us. I don't think there's just an anxious. There's people who are sort of melancholy, and that's their temperament. Uh, but all of us is anxious about something. Maybe it's money. I don't, I don't know. And, and in this un world of uncertainty, that's why we need the certainty of God and His Word because we'll be anxious otherwise. But He promises here to be with us every step of the way. I mean, we must meditate on His Word every day so we don't forsake Him. We forsake Him when we don't listen to His Word every day. We forsake Him. Really and truly, when God, the, the Word of God leaves a church, God has forsaken that church. When you preach something else other than this Word God's speaking, then you've just really, uh, God's really abandoned that church and those elders and, and those people. This is why we harp on reading the Word of God all the time, not so you can tell us, hey, I read through the Bible this year. I don't care about that, but I want you to hear from God every day. 
And that's what we need to form and transform our minds with the Word of God, right? And it'll, it'll, I think it'll take away some of our anxiety if, if we do, to read His promises every day. Because if Christ is your all in all, you don't have to fear. And He says here, you don't have to fear man. Listen to this. The Lord is my helper, verse 6, I will not fear what can man do to me. Because most of our fear, most of our anxiety comes back to what? This is why I'm convinced he says this. It comes back to a fear of man. And you hear preachers say, well, there's men fears out there. Well, I've got news. Every preacher is a man fear, everyone that I know. And every Christian fears man on some level. And by that I mean people. We fear people, what they think about us, about our relationship. Are they going to make fun of us? Are they going to cancel us? Are they going to think we're not with it? We think supremely about what people think about us. That's why he says this. This is a good place to end. We're anxious over that. Because if Christ is your, but if Christ is your all in all and your contentment's in him, you don't have to fear man. Because when we fear people more than God, listen to this now, we are enslaved to those people. I tell people in counseling all the time, when you're fearful of them, they own you. When you exist to please them, they own you. You are their slave. They own you. Because we're enslaved to that what, which we fear. Paul says this in Romans, doesn't he? I mean, really and truly, when we're fearful of the certain person or people, they control our lives. They become our masters. I mean, what is the fear of man? It is this. It's, it's when we replace God with people. It's that simple. When we replace God and what he thinks about us, his estimation of us, with what people think about us, then we fear man to a sinful degree. He says, but he says, what can man do to you? I mean, relating to other people, especially trying to please other people, may be the main temptation in life that will undermine your contentment in Christ. That's how important this is. And you know it's true. Can I get an amen? You know this is true, isn't it? Because this is true of me. Especially as a pastor, man, I, there's a certain part of me that really wants to make you happy. And I must not try to make you happy. I must preach the word of God so he will make you holy. Your holiness, not your happiness. That must be my primary concern and Doug's primary concern and Clay's, our elder's primary concern. But yet I struggle with that because sometimes I just want you to be happy with me. And that means more to me than your holiness. See, I battle this too. We all do. I mean, maybe you struggle with peer pressure. And it's not just young people, old people. I, I struggle with peer pressure. My, 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 my fellow ministers, my fellow pastors, I, I feel the peer pressure. They got a big church. I need to grow a big church. <clears throat> they preach through Romans in 15 years. I need to preach through Romans in 15 years. Okay, maybe not that. No, we, we, we feel peer pressure. All people struggle with this. Or maybe, maybe you can't say no. You're overcommitted. You're worn out because you're so driven to please people. You just can't say no. And you're tired. You wonder why. Well, you can't say no. I need to learn this lesson. Oh, my goodness, do I need to learn this lesson. Maybe you need something from your spouse always. You need her affirmation. You fear him so your spouse controls you. You're enslaved to your spouse. Your spouse may be wonderful, but he or she does not make a good God not a good God replacement. Maybe you live with a withering fear that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. Oh, they're going to get to know me. They're going to know I'm just a fraud. I'm not the good chap or the good lady they think I am. I'm a fraud. They're going to know it. You fear them so 
You, you fear that. You're exposed to fraud. The opinions of others control you. Or maybe you feel empty or meaningless and you hunger to be loved by others so that you're controlled by them. Or maybe you lie or stretch the truth about yourself to make others like you more. Maybe you lie on Facebook and make this wonderful life for yourself. And really, that's not the truth. Is it ever true of any of us on Facebook or Twitter or whatever your chosen platform is? But you're controlled by them, right? This, this opinion of others. This hunger to be loved by them controls you. you. So you stretch the truth. You become somebody you're not, and then you've got to live in somebody you're not, and you're miserable. Because the fear of man, not the fear of God who will never leave you nor forsake you, controls you. How many broken relationships have you been through in your lives? How many of you are still best friends with all your high school friends? Anybody? My two best friends in high school, I, I mean, I... I know where they are. <laughs> I remember their names. I tell my kids this all the time. These people you think you're wanting to die for right now in 40 years, 30 years, you're going to say, I think I remember that guy or that girl. I think so. Yet they control you. Or you're jealous of other people. You're controlled by them, their things or their accomplishments. You want to be just like them. Maybe people annoy you altogether. You just don't like anybody. They make you angry. And if so, they're controlling the center of your life because you don't like people. You just can't stand them. They all annoy you. Maybe you avoid people altogether. You're a hermit because you don't like people. And being, but being a hermit means you're dominated by what? By the fear of man. Your hermitness means that you fear man. I just need me. How self-centered is that? So I'm just an introvert. Well, there are introverts and extroverts. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you a hermit? And why are you a hermit? <laughs> Some of us are hermits. Some of us would never come out in the sun. I mean, fear of man is a universal problem. Fear of man is not limited. to shy and mousy types. I promise you, it infects every one of us. Every one of us. But if we're in Christ and he's our treasure, if we're content in him, what can man do to us? Nothing. Man can't control you. Man can do nothing to you if you're content in him. You see how he's building this argument all the way up to the fear of man, which is sort of the apex of discontentment? He can't, I can't touch you. And you no longer live to fear of man. I'm not, this doesn't mean you have an attitude and you want to make everybody mad. I'm not saying that either. What I'm just saying is that if you love them well and you're giving your best to them and they don't like you, then that is their problem. And I've said that many times to my wife and my kids, really and truly. And I don't mean that their problem is having an attitude, but I mean you just can't control other people, can you? But if you live for an audience of one to please Christ and can find contentment in Him, then you're free. You're free. How do I do it? How do it, can you be content? Five quick things. This is going to take two, one minute. One, realize that conditions and circumstances in life are always changing. Therefore, my satisfaction and joy must not be tied to my circumstances. The only thing in life that never changes is that everything changes. That's the only thing in life that's unchanging. Sounds like a good country song, doesn't it? In fact, it is. <laughs> Secondly, what matters supremely in my life is my soul and my relationship to God. Is that where you are, young person, older person? Is your first priority in life your relationship with God and your, the, the well-being of your soul, not your body, but your heart? Is that your first primary goal in life? Christ's death and resurrection are your only hope. Thirdly, God is concerned about me as my father. 
Nothing happens to me apart from his will. God is sovereign. Every hair on your head, every hair on your head. And some of you, that's becoming a collector's item. I realize that, right? And some of us are turning gray. But every hair on your head is numbered. And those birds that you see dead on the side of the road, God knew about that, right? He knew not one sparrow falls from the sky apart from our Father. Not one. Not one. And the arguments from lesser to greater, how much more does he care for you? He's sovereign. His providence governs your life every day, and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. What are you worried about? What am I worried about? Why do we freak out when adversity comes? Fourth, I must not regard my circumstances and conditions in and of themselves, but if, as part of God's dealings with me and the work of perfecting my soul and bringing me to final perfection. Suffering is an important part of this. Everything God brings into your life is for your good and for his glory. And finally, whatever my conditions, and I think these, these are, this is five and six, the, my, my PowerPoint messed up. Whatever my conditions may be at this present moment, they are only temporary. Think about five years ago in some circumstance you were in. You think, boy, that seems like a long time ago. But at that moment, it exercised dominance over your life. But it was only temporary, right? Just one little blip on the, the number line of your life. And God was sovereign over that. Beloved, he will never leave you nor forsake you. You can be content in him and nothing else. You can't say that about anything else. No, no number in a bank account can ever, that can ever be said of that. Because we know the stock market can crash, can it? Your money can be gone. But he will never leave you nor forsake you. I close with this. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. I love this. I love this with all my heart. This I've, I've, I've repeated this to myself many, many times over the years and in those situations that are anxiety-producing. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you. You get that? He's your creator, your sovereign Lord. He says, O my creator. He's praying to his creator here, your creator and my creator, O Israel. Fear not. This is, the, this is God speaking. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have bought you back. I have sent my son to die in your place. I'm not going to forget the rent. I'm not going to forget about uh, food. <laughs> I have called you by name. You are mine. You are elect. He's talking to Israel and about Israel. But now we apply this to the church today, right? You are mine and I call you by my name. Christian. And then he says this. And oh, how glorious the promise this is. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Have you been through the waters? Is it up to your neck? He will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned in flame. The flame shall not consume you. Are you walking through the fire right now? Are you in the midst of an anxious season? Are you in the fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who was in there with them? Jesus. Jesus is there with you.
He's there with you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He died in your place and he loves you. Find your contentment in him this day. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are a discontented people. Give us grace, those of us who are found, those of us who are your people. Help us to find our satisfaction not in the things of this world, not in full bank accounts, not in hundreds of friends, not in the esteem the world gives us, but to be found in Christ alone at the foot of the old rugged cross. So that we can say this momentary light of affliction is producing in us the weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But look not to the things that are unseen, but the thing, or things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. God, I pray that that would be the cry of every soul here, that we would gloriously cry out today and every day, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, and you comfort me. Give us grace to be content in you now until Jesus comes for your glory. Amen.